Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice, so we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Fergus Turner. A Bertha alumni student, I have been working with the Bertha Center's Youth Development Innovation Portfolio as well as the Social Systems Justice and Innovation Portfolio. Established in 2011 in partnership with the Bertha Foundation as a specialized center at the UCT Graduate School of Business, the Bertha Center works with inspiring leaders who are catalysts for social and economic change and human rights. The center's mission is to pursue social impact towards social justice in Africa through teaching, knowledge building, convening, and catalytic projects with a systems lens on social innovation. The first academic center in Africa dedicated to advancing social innovation and entrepreneurship, the Bertha Center, in collaboration with the GSB, has integrated social innovation into the business school curriculum established a wide community of practitioners and awarded scholarships on MBA, MPhil and PhD programs to more than 91 students from 16 African countries over the past 10 years. So why hand out scholarships? Well, the main motivation for us to award these scholarships is that we can bring together out-of-the-box thinkers, social activists and systems entrepreneurs. It's no secret that many of the big systems are crumbling we want to nurture a new generation of social innovators and promote entrepreneurial solutions to help solve some of the most urgent social and environmental problems of our time. On today's slightly different Just for a Change episode, we are welcoming three of our current scholarship students. Shannon van Veek and Samson Adoti all obviously have a strong social innovation leaning. Shannon, Samson, Thank you for being here with us today. It's always a privilege to share conversation and insights with you. And uh, now for the first time in person in a very long time. Um, so if you could just share a little more about how you've come to be here, Shannon, um, what influences your work, uh, what keeps you thinking and dreaming about a new world. Um, and we'll hand over to Samson after. Cool. Thanks, Fergus. Um, yeah, how did I get here? So I am a digital strategist um, by craft. I started off in advertising um, and I was definitely experiencing a bit of an existential crisis before I applied um, to the GSB um, and then to the um, for the Bertha Scholarship as well. Um, and essentially, I knew that like I had like the skill for communication, but I knew it wasn't being used in the correct space. Um, and then I applied to the MPhil and I feel like um, it answered a lot of the questions I had, but it also opened up this completely new community to me. Um, and just like consequent to that, um, I left my job in advertising. I moved into the social impact space. I moved back to Cape Town because I'm from Cape Town and I'm very interested in um, community mobilization and resource mobilization. And I felt like I needed to come home to do that work. So currently, um, I am the digital portfolio manager at Afrobarometer, 
We conduct um, surveys in public perceptions around democracy and governance across the continent. Um, but I'm also interested in like the communities that particularly my family comes from, the communities um, surrounding Cape Town that are affected by spatial apartheid. Um, and I just want to understand, like there's so many voices. Um, I want to understand how we can better amplify those voices. And for me, I think digital is just this incredible tool to do that. Like I grew up on the internet. I know that there's more uses um, than selling things to people like through Facebook. And I want to figure out like, how do we implement that properly? And then my master's research in the MPhil is um, focusing on digital democracy. So how do we take tools and platforms and extend democratic processes so that they can be more accessible um, and more inclusive. So like right now I'm looking at public participation, but I mean, I think like this is something that goes throughout the entire system. Um, and yeah, it's just about like poking and prodding and being like, how do we change things now? Certainly. And, you know, referencing that, that um, motivation to step into both the Bertha Scholarship space and the M4, um, it often seems to be somewhat of a personal and professional crisis or, or uh, questioning that, that launches us into that. So speaking of democracy and um, sort of bringing more people into democratic processes, Samson, if you could share with us um, a newest, uh, part of the newest cohort, um, scholarship cohort as part of the program, um, how you've come to be here and a little bit about your background and interests. Thanks, Vegas. Um, and it's a privilege to be here. And I must say that I count myself as one of those lucky people who got accepted into the CS cohort, um, barring all the current pandemonium in, in, in the economy and whatever it is in the world, the state of the world today. My journey is quite an interesting one. And when I graduated from my undergraduate degree in 2016, um, I got a scholarship to go into an MBA program. One month down the line, I dropped out of it uh, because I felt I wasn't prepared for that program. So then I went uh, onward to work and I had an opportunity to work across multiple sectors from water and sanitation to education to the healthcare and the development sector. And having worked in different roles and having experienced communities across Sub-Saharan Africa and being involved in indigenous development, I felt I needed a program that would allow me to think about innovation in a very inclusive way, um, especially um, because at that point I was working as a policy and communication specialist in a foresight organization. And part of the work I was doing was developing a roadmap for the digital economy of Africa together with the African Union. And so having transitioned from that role into um, a different role in the mother organization of that organization, which is the African Institute of Mathematical Sciences, um, I felt that I needed some form of edge above my colleagues and also some form of training to be to become better at what I do. Hence, I chanced on uh, the program on Facebook, strangely. Um, and I was one, one time I was browsing on the internet and having a chat with a friend and I was like, ah, uh, just looking across, you know, scrolling up. And then I saw the, the ad um, applied. And at first I thought I probably might not get in because... 
I looked at the previous cohorts and like the experience, the wealth of experience and all of that. But then when I got your message, I was really excited um, after that um, whole admission process. So I think for me, what actually drives me and the, the, the core focus of my research and having, you know, to study at um, within the center um, is I really want to understand how do we how do we leverage ed tech, educational te technology, for instance, to prepare young people for the future of work? Because there's this whole conversation about the fourth industrial revolution, what we need to do, all these fanciful, you know, and emerging technologies, uh, biotechnology, Bitcoin, whatever, cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, and all of that. But we have over 125 million young people who do not have access to laptops in Africa, right? So how do you expect this population to actually be skilled enough to be partakers and creators within that digital economy and to be part of the fourth industrial revolution? So that's what my research is about. I really want to understand how can we, in an innovative and inclusive manner, solve this problem? Because to be honest, it's a grand challenge. And if care is not taken, it's going to be a grand challenge for several decades. And you and I would have kids and our kids would grow up to be doctors or whatever it is, and it will still be a problem. Mm. Yeah. So for both of you, your research interests intersect social innovation and very difficult and often politicized uh, complex systems. Uh, when you talk about democracy and inclusion of new groups of young people in democratic practice, or when you talk about the realities of transitioning uh, this continent's economies to the next iteration of what work looks like in the future, um, these are difficult and complex issues. And often when we speak about social innovation and systems change, it is easy to gloss over the difficult questions and realities that have everything to do with the change we seek to make. So I'd like to dig a little bit more into those inconvenient truths that you may be experiencing in your research, in your work, um, connected to political economy, democracy, and social cohesion. So I guess like overarchingly, as you were speaking, the one thing that I was kind of like thinking about in terms of inconvenient truths, particularly around social innovation, um, like the thing that comes to mind for me is this question of like, are we willing to let go of how we benefit from the status quo? And that's like the overarching thing for me, because like as I've gotten into my research, at first I was kind of like, this is the problem or this is the expression of the problem. And like, how do we fix that? And like, obviously the, the info is about like systems. I mean, the entire like Bertha Center is like based on like systems thinking. Um, and then I was like, okay, cool, flip it around. And it's like, these are the structures that we need to change. And it's not even just about changing those structures then. It's about the individual within those structures and how they're willing to like let go of power and if they're willing to let go of power. Um, and that's kind of the point that I'm at now. And I'm not going to pretend like I have an answer because I definitely don't. And I'm pretty sure if I get a little bit more into my research, I'll have some understanding of how we move through that. Um, but I currently just have this understanding that well, my main thing is that there needs to be like this ego death um, in terms of allowing us to like get to this point of social innovation. Yeah, and I and to, to add to what you're saying, when I think about ego death, I also think about 
um, it beyond, you know, um, politics, um, especially talk about industry, talk about, mm-hmm. you know, the different structures. You, you talk about traditional leadership because there's like polit- there's a political class and there's tradi- the traditional class. Like in our African societies, typically you'd find that villages are governed by either chiefs or kings or queens. And often, you know, that institution, that traditional governance institution is not in tandem with existing political structures. So you'd find that few countries across Africa have that, you know, um, symbiotic relationship um, in terms of these two structures, but some don't have at all. So um, it then becomes very difficult. So I'll, I'll give you an example in Ghana, where, where I come from. Um, if the politician during the election period, you know, when politicians want to campaign, they go to see the chiefs and the kings um, for approval and what or whatever it is. After that happens, and when they win, nobody comes back to the chief, right? And there's this power play because there's, I am the elected representative, obviously. I control the resources of the state. Um, the chief is like, well, the lands are vested in my hands. So you can't do any development, whatever, without my permission, right? And so there's that battle. So then you'd find that the people who suffer that, who suffer or who are the casualties um, of this battle is the, 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 the people, you know, the normal person who has no political power, who has no traditional power, and who's literally like going to farm to feed his children. And that becomes a big challenge. And we need to really think around how to disrupt that sort of challenge that exists currently. I mean, the fact that these guys are consistently and continuously on each other's streets um, for the scarce resources available. And you'd often find that people even encroach on government lands um, and even on traditional lands, which, which in any case could be very... I mean, the subject of land or the topic of land is a very important thing because, you know, land rights gives people power because if I sell my land to you, I get money, right? And that money could help me take care of my family. But if you take away my land, how do I, you know, sell the land to you in the first place? I don't have any money to to pay for my kids' tuition and whatnot. So then there are a number of interesting examples that I really want to talk about, but I'm also mindful of the fact that beyond you know, the complexities and complicated structures that we have. And I think Shannon did talk about like behavioral change and mm-hmm. and how that is important. Um, often politicians shy away from the fact that um, behavioral change takes time. You know, people are interested in just splashing money at anything. So you'd find a lot of, one of the things I love to do uh, for fun is just visiting like all these aid organization websites and looking at the tenders. And in Malawi, for instance, you'd find the European Union has all these calls for like tenders and all of that. And you look at the description and it's like flyers, banners, whatnot. Flyers and banners won't solve the behavioral crisis we have on this continent. You know, so we can print as many flyers and banners as much as we want. But if we are not strategic and intentional about behavioral communication, we're going to have a big issue and we might not get the Africa we all dream and want. I mean, 10 years down the line. So you speak about strategic and intentional, linking that to a sort of 
patience or the virtue of patience, especially in political change. So bringing those same virtues and those same notes, Samson, into this discussion of as social innovators and as people interested in social innovation and systems change, um, what are examples or at least uh, ways of thinking about how to be patient, how to um, look more clearly at what is strategic and intentional disruption? Um, one thing that always you know, makes me um, worried is when people in the development sector go into communities and think the communities have no knowledge or clue about what they are doing, right? You come into my community to tell me that, well, the way you do things doesn't work and it's not the right way. And I'm going to teach you how to do it, you know. And often what they realize or these guys find out after years of pumping money into countless projects is that the solutions that they present are not viable. They don't last. They are not sustainable. And when they leave, these guys are back to, you know, whatever they were doing before. So in the light of patience and intentionality, um, one of the things that I can you know, suggest or propose is having to acknowledge the role and importance of indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems. Um, when we want to um, plug, you know, our computer to to charge it, right? We don't just go and look for the sun and just plug the 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 the, the whole thing into the sun. No, we look for a socket. If there's no socket, we have to look for an extension. And then we connect that extension to a socket before we plug our charger. So if you come into my community, assuming the source then is the indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems, the next point of connection is if I can find that if I come with a solution, which is to connect my solution to the existing systems, and I can't find a place to plug it, where do you go? You follow the community entry process. Um, and often people neglect that. People go into communities and they're like, oh, you guys, I just noticed you don't have a market. You don't have a hospital. You don't have this. Okay, I'm going to build you this. I'm going to do that. Um, and then you realize that that is not a primary need of a community. You know, you find I have had found myself in a situation where I spent about seven weeks in a very rural and remote community with, without electricity, without tel um, a telephone network or whatsoever it is. And, you know, I was conducting research and I really wanted to understand the problems and the priorities of the people in that community. I was shocked, uh, you know, having stayed there for seven weeks and thinking that, oh, they need a clinic, they need this, they need that. I was shocked to find out um, during one of the community gatherings what they felt was their agent's most urgent need. And I realized that if I had listened much more intentionally and, and, and I had engaged people with a very open mind, you know, I could have done better. And luckily for me, that was my first year. So in my second year, my approach changed. And to be very honest with you, by the second year, the third week of my seven-week stay, that community got electricity, right? Because... When I came to that realization and I was exiting, I made it, my friends, my colleagues and I made it 
a point of interest to start finding ways that we could actually get electricity into that community. And hence, when we did that, you know, the need, the other needs that were, you know, in 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 whatever order it is, you know, followed after. And so I think we need to start thinking around these lines, like valuing indigenous knowledge and indigenous knowledge systems. For me, I feel like kind of the pathway to that is this understanding of like how systems need to be more reflexive. So I think to preface that, as a society, we have an obsession with like precedent setting and then doing things based on like that precedent that's been set. Um, And I think that's the disconnect that you speak about in terms of like government um, and like community leaders, because I think that community leaders need to be reflexive to be responsive to the needs of communities. But I think government is allowed to be like, this is the playbook. This is the bureaucracy. We do things like this. You know, this is how it's always been done. Um, So that's the big challenge for me. It's like, how do you take these systems and how do you ensure that they are reflexive? And there's like a level of introspection that happens there, um, both in terms of an organization and like an, like a personal um, kind of like setup. Yeah. So, you know, what I'm hearing uh, sort of from you, Shannon, is recognizing this balance of the sort of playbook of institutional ways of dealing with complexity, compressing uncertainty. That's what bureaucracy does um, to some extent. and sort of recognizing that there's virtue in finding that balance and perhaps not um, polarizing uh, sort of grounded indigenous or community knowledge, layers of knowledge that are linked to real experience and the layer of the political, the layer of the bureaucratic political class, right? And so I so so seeing those the that sort of similar signal from both of your experiences, I want to sort of sort of unpack the next layer, which is how do there's a the, there's a political conscientiousness or a political um, understanding in the way that you share your experience. How might we bring that recognition of political realities, often unseen? Um, into the way that we practice social innovation and systems change. Again, pointing to any examples or key questions that sit with you. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, Samson, you really touched on that, um, this idea of not parachuting people into communities and being like, we're going to fix your problems. Um, In my personal experience, I think like that's something that I've had to reckon with since moving back to Cape Town. So I am, you guys can't see me, but I'm colored from Cape Town. Uh, my family comes from um, District 6, or what was previously known as District 6, um, and, and Mitchell's Plain. So there's this great kind of like desire for me to take this institutional knowledge that I have and put, bring it back into the community and be like, I'm here to help you guys. Um, and I lived in Joburg for like four years. Um, so there was this kind of longing to be back in Cape Town and to be within my community. But I'm also very aware of the fact that as much as I am uh, marginalized in certain ways, I'm very privileged in certain ways. Um, and it's not my position to come into those communities that I feel like are mine um, and to kind of like, yeah, do this thing where I'm like, this is what we need to fix. This is how we need to go about it. Um, so I think for me, a big thing is like, what are the platforms that we create? Um, and what are the platforms that we create for other people? That's kind of like a big area um, of what I think my research 
or what I would like my research to focus on? Um, and how do we understand what communities already have, what the strengths are, who the people are that they listen to? And then how do we just like kind of mobilize that for the greater good? So talking about humility, talking about sort of platforms as a type of, you know, prioritizing inclusivity, prioritizing access, enabling others to um, to be a part of a future, that has an implication on politics and power and in many ways um, could come up to confrontation with the kind of ego, if you will, of the present day power structures institutions. And so, again, I'm going to press a little harder and say, um, what do we do? What do we do as social innovators, as entrepreneurs who are hoping for a new future, finding market or non-market solutions to social and environmental challenges? What do we do when we come across um, that, that encounter with a political reality that does not um, suit inclusive platforms and accessibility for all? The answer is very simple. Um, let us not lean away from participatory approaches. It's as simple as that. I mean, top-down hasn't worked for us. And we've we've studied this in school. We've read the theories and all of that. And we've just seen it. It doesn't work. I mean, when you have a very centralized system, which eliminates participation at a grassroots level, it doesn't make it work. I mean, a good example, Kenya had to move into a devolved uh, or a devolution in recent times because they realized that, look, if we want to really get ourselves at par across counties, we need to do things differently, you know, and they're currently in a constitutional review process. I mean, a number of other countries have realized this and are gradually shifting and empowering, you know, their various uh, districts, uh, what they call in Ghana, for instance, the metropolitan, municipal, and district assemblies, and trying to fund, uh, give them more funds, trying to give them the leeway to actually drive development and growth at the grassroots level. So we cannot continue to do things as we've done in the past. It's, it's as simple as that. Um, we need to start leaning towards co-creation um, when it comes to problem solving. We need to start um, lean towards, you know, participatory approaches and not just for the fact that the donors are going to give us money for that, but we need to actually have that in our DNA, like imbibe this in us. We, we should be sleeping and dreaming, you know, participatory approaches our entire lives. And maybe when 10, 20 years, 30 years down the line, a new approach comes up, we might, you know, think about that. So Samson, I mean, there's an emphasis on political systems moving towards decentralization, right? Which is the devolution of power uh, in order to cope with emerging trends and patterns in society and in the global economy. Kenya is a case in point. Um, however, when it comes to uh, taking that participatory approach, when it comes to uh, let's innovate with a decentralization priority and with a deep intentional listening. Um, when we confront the hegemony, the entrenched institutionality of the way that things have been done before, whether it's in the AIDS sort of space, whether it's in the development sector, whether it's in the political sector, um, 
how do we how do we maintain a resilience as innovators? How do we not, as you say, lean back out and acquiesce to uh, previous institutions and the sway of power? Shannon, do you have anything to share on that? Yeah, um, definitely. I feel like this is kind of, it's so interesting how all impulses reach the same like point. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think like my addition to that is like, Let's look at the system of representative democracy. And I completely agree with you. I think we need to move to a place where we are encouraging participation more. And I think that currently representative democracies aren't set up for that. Um, so I think we have this understanding that like within this type of setup, the person who you've elected to represent you will now go and take your issues up into like policymaking spaces. But we understand that there's no deliberation that happens within representative democracies. And most of the time, the people who are representing us are the political and economic elites. You know, there's this ward councillor syndrome where, I mean, you, you spoke about it. You come in, you address the, the community, you do the checkbox things so that people will vote for you. And then you leave and you're like hardly ever there again. Uh, and in my own province where we're sitting, it's like a, this is a really big issue. Um, so yeah, like, I guess my contribution is to, to that is that like, and all of this, I always go to like the high up stuff, but we have to like throw the system out. We have to create spaces for deliberation. Um, and I feel like we need to also like ensure that participation is intentional because I think we can also point to the way that we participate now. We can be like, we've got a public particip participation, um, set up. It's, it works, but we also know that like, there's so many layers, there's so much cherry picking that happens within that, that at the end of the day, um, communities aren't feeling the impact of that. Um, and then another thing I think for me is like evidence-based policymaking. So it is like when you go back into communities, are you actually listening to them? How are you taking through those kind of like issues that they're speaking about? What's the feedback loop so that there's some accountability to these systems as well? Um, but yeah, I feel like my takeout is at the end of the day, like disrupt the status quo. And I mean, you speak about like how often, how much time do we have? I don't even think it's like a matter of like how much time does the system have? I think the people are mobilizing and they are going to force the system to change. And I think like for me, that's the cool thing about like social media and like social media advocacy and movements that are like born within social media because it's literally like the internet. And I mean, yeah, the internet can be used for whatever your intentions are. Um, but when it comes down to that, if you're like, I want to mobilize, I want to organize, you can do it on these in these platforms now. So it's going to get to a, a point where the status quo will, it's not a matter of like, how, like, like, can these systems maintain the status quo? It's just going to be like, things will have to change because there's this external pressure now. Are we heading? I, I want to ask a question. So do do we think we're heading towards like a reset um a reset of perhaps all the systems that we can think about um especially looking at the past one year and how covid has you know sort of influenced um a lot of changes to some extent i mean changes in the educational sector changes even in governance some countries had elections and they had to re-strategize around like even allowing observer groups into their countries. You, I can give you an example. In Burundi, we also what happened when, when the government issued a statement and said, we aren't taking anyone. Um, we aren't letting any observers into our country, except if you're in Burundi or you're in the East African 
you know, community zone or something like of that sort. Um, we've seen the same in my country where uh, suddenly the rules were relaxed when we were getting towards elections and people could, you know, congregate in large numbers. Um, and right after that, we saw another wave and people were now criticizing government for whatever it is like that. You guys are the fault. It's your fault. We're having these numbers and all, and what's, uh, whatever it is. So I'm just thinking, like, are we getting towards a reset? What do you think? I sincerely hope we aren't. And the point that I will make is reset, revolution, uh, any of those words, any of those transition words imply a shock, a type of shock, a, a suddenness. And we know from the tales of history that sudden change, whether by war, revolution, uprising, crisis, natural disaster, often leaves the collective traumatized. And we end up in fight or flight, perpetuating and recreating uh, the institutions that help us to feel safe and secure and protected from that ego and, and really literally from that from that self that is not necessarily as Samson is talking about dreaming into the future. And so what I would pose is to say we talk about co-creation and I'll sort of answer my own question here. How can we entertain a lens where not only am I co-creating with someone like you, Shannon, or, or someone like you, Samson, where there's a shared dream and a shared drive and a shared sort of, uh, you could even say, ideological position. But how can we start to appreciate the role of co-creating with uh, that with which we are contending and confronting? And I'd like to invite us all perhaps just to uh, measure a, a final response to, to this sort of what now and, and, and where to next as we start to conclude this conversation. I guess my addition to this question of like, are we heading toward a reset? Or at least what I feel like I've seen is that um, the world is getting smaller and we have access to more things. And I like that you said um, this idea of like dreaming into the future. Um, and I also think that like we, my generation, your generation, we're a generation of people who are a lot more introspective. So for me, it all comes back to like here, like, like what are the, the things we're willing to let go of personally? And then how does that like translate to a broader community? Yeah. And also talking about dreams, um, you know, I want to think what is the African dream? Right. There's a lot of conversation about the Africa we want. But what is the African dream? Are we co-creating a dream that we can all buy into and work towards? Or are we saying there's Agenda 2063? So to hell with any dream that doesn't align with Agenda 2063. Yeah. And recognizing that those kind of uh, macro global um, pictures are again a reflection of where we're coming from and not where we're going to so you know we talk about the abstractions of the political and then the level of community and of participation um but what about when it comes down to ourselves as individuals as people uh working in sometimes 
very difficult sectors that suffer from the same symptoms that they're trying to change in the world. Uh, how do we survive? How do we as social innovators, as scholars, as people working in the field, survive the twists and turns of very difficult realities? Okay, so for me, um, I think what has worked is finding a balance between being on the field and off the field. Um, in the sense that when I spend a lot of time, you know, in the office trying to just do office work, I get tired. I get bent out. You know, I'm always yearning to go out into the field to speak to people, to interview people, to work with people, to design solutions with people. And for me, anytime I find myself in the process of getting bent out, I always look for an escape. Um, and the escape is going into like a community to derive inspiration and often not just going into the community, but actually speaking to people and listening to stories. Because trust me, when you're on your bed at night and you're tired, you're stressed, you're bent out, probably depressed, and you remember some of these stories and the reason why you need to wake up the next morning, get dressed and show up for that young guy who has this dream of becoming an aerospace engineer, you actually get out of that um, feeling. I'm not even going to pretend like I have an answer to that question. Um, I think my path is a bit different. I think I started off in a very like commercial space, like working in commercial advertising. And I've always felt like even before I, I started working when I was in university, like social issues and the social sciences spoke to me. But there is this understanding of like this burnout and that's why I didn't get into it. Like that's why I was like, let me just go and take care of myself. Like being very liberal individualist and like I'm fine, everything else will be fine. And then that wasn't fulfilling for me. So now I just have to try this out because I guess I've got to figure out like what this is. Um, so I think I've got like this still very theoretical understanding, theoretical application. I think there's even like a level of disconnect between the fact that I'm a digital portfolio manager means that there is like, there's some screens in between me and the people that we do the research with. There's like, it's a bit sanitized. Um, so yeah, like I'm still figuring that out. I don't have the answers just yet, but it definitely was like a big thing that I thought about and the reason why I was like, I'm not going to get into this space. Um, but then I think it comes back to like personal sacrifice. I've seen the the rosy side where you can like make like lots of money and live a comfortable life and not be like burnt out by issues that aren't necessarily yours. And I think it's a personal feeling that that doesn't speak to me. And now I'm going to try out this space um, and I'm going to try and like navigate it with intentionality. But I also think having a specific time period for things is important. So uh, with that, um, I'd like to thank you for a, uh, I mean, Shannon, you, you hit the nail on the head. It seems as if all scholars kind of get here. This is this is why we come in. We're we're asking we're asking questions not just of the world, of our work, but of ourselves, principally, and how that links to our professional and personal journeys have everything to do with what the scholarship, what the birth of scholarship is all about since inception. And I want to sort of um, close things off with really a um, just a simple reflection on. For those who might be listening and might be interested in finding more about the scholarship program, perhaps getting involved in the Bertha Center or the scholarship program specifically, um, what are your what are your reflections on where the program is going, and what kind of people uh, might like to find out more and apply? Um, 
My piece of advice is don't let imposter syndrome get you down. I feel like everyone who applies for the like program for the Bertha scholarship was like, I didn't think I would get it. Um, but if you've got something within you, I think go ahead. And then I think like my last thing that I'd like to add is um, I'm keen to see how we, I think that we've got this incredible community within the Bertha like center and I would like to see how we move that into like other communities like how do we create connections outside of just the people who know the work that we're doing yeah and I think my what I would add to what Shannon is saying is the fact that um we within the better community there's diversity um people working on different types of things and I feel like if we ever had a planet to model you know what our what what the world we want will look like we have the expertise in the center to be able to get this done as mentioned earlier the bertha center has provided scholarships to more than 91 students from 16 african countries over the past 10 years we asked some alumni about how the bertha scholarship program has catalyzed their work let's hear what they had to say uh, the bertha scholarship made it possible for me to uh, attend uh, UCT, GSB, uh, MBA in uh, 2020 and 2019. This was a foundational year for me in terms of uh, preparing myself for setting out as a as an entrepreneur. Uh, enabled me to set up um, a fund um, to deploy capital into social impact businesses. The Without the support of the Bertha Scholarship, I've never been able to afford, nor have uh, found the time to to embark on this journey. So it was quite fundamental and foundational in terms of my personal development. Since finishing the Bertha Scholarship program, I've changed both the country that I live in and the job that I do. Not only did the Bertha Scholarship program enable me to get the job that I currently have, but what I'm constantly struck by is in my new role, which is an international role, how much more understanding I have of the challenges around diversity and the need to incorporate dissenting and different views in the work that I do. Being a Bertha Scholar opened my eyes to many of the challenges that otherwise go unseen and unnoticed. And I now make you know, a big part of my work is to make sure that these views are incorporated and understood by the stakeholders that I work with on a daily basis. Hearing from these scholars really excites me. What a joy to know that a scholarship program can play such a significant role in catalyzing social innovation that really makes a difference in the lives of people and communities. As the Bertha Center, our desire is to influence business and government leaders to make the systemic changes needed to address key socioeconomic and environmental challenges. So, our goal over the next five years is to support the growth of changemakers across the continent and globally who can make a social impact in communities, in business, and in the public sector. We see social innovation scholarships as an important way to change the way we're changing the world because we know that if these hand-selected students are well-trained and equipped, they will go out there and effectively play their part in changing the world. Thank you for tuning in to Just For A Change, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. 
the podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Thank you.